Howdy, this is Adam from St. Petersburg, Florida, and I'm not calling to ask any questions about gender-affirming care because I myself have received gender-affirming care. I'm an AFAB trans man, and at the age of five, I was telling people that when I grew up, I was going to be a boy. So uh, what I know about gender-affirming care is that it's life-changing, and my quality of life has skyrocketed since I have transitioned. Hi, my name is Kimberly, and I'm from Crawfordsville, Indiana. My son, who is now 21 years old, is a female to male transgendered youth, and the gender-affirming care and therapy that we were able to get when he decided to come out at the age of 14 absolutely saved his life. He went from being a depressed and confused child to being a beautiful and amazing member of society. So gender-affirming care should be available to anyone who wants it. My name is Alec from Nashville, Tennessee. I'm the proud parent of a gender-fluid child. And like any parent, we want our children to grow up in a safe, healthy world so that they can be a healthy adult and live the life that we would desire for them. But when you have a gender fluid child, you also understand that the world is not prepared to prepare for this. And there's a higher chance of self-harm or suicide. It's 41 to 51 percent. And so those who get stuck on the issue and don't look at the person who the issue affects, I'd implore you to think about what you would do if this was your child and there was something that people were preventing that could keep your child alive. More than a dozen states have drafted or voted on restrictions to critical health care for trans youth, known as gender-affirming care. The latest is Alabama. The state signed a new law last week that bans gender-affirming care for minors. If not blocked in court, the new law takes effect in May. This sweeping legislation has garnered a critical response from the White House. Roughly 150,000 American youth identify as transgender. About a third of that population is at risk of losing access to this health care. That's according to a report from the Williams Institute at UCLA's School of Law. But it's not just trans youth who are being targeted. Doctors and pediatricians who provide this care are seeing their livelihoods threatened. After the break, we'll talk to a panel of doctors about what it means to provide gender-affirming care and the toll of this legislation on their jobs and their patients. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. To join future conversations, have your questions answered on future topics, or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. Let's jump into our conversation on gender-affirming care. Joining us is Dr. Gina Sequera. She's the co-director of Seattle Children's Gender Clinic. Dr. Sequera, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Also with us is Dr. Marissa Ledensky. She's a professor of pediatrics at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. She's also the co-lead of the university's youth multidisciplinary gender team. And she's also a plaintiff in a lawsuit challenging the latest ban in Alabama. Dr. Ledensky, good to have you with us. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us and amplifying these voices. Also joining us is Dr. Jerrica Kirkley. She's the co-founder of Plume, the first digital health company dedicated to the trans community. Dr. Kirkley, welcome to the program. 
Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Jen. Really happy to be here. So Dr. Ladinsky, let's get into some basics. When we say gender-affirming care, what's the spectrum of care we're talking about? It is somewhat of an umbrella term, but it's used by all of our major medical organizations to encompass and delineate a form of health care that embraces the diversity of gender identities, that acknowledges that gender identity is completely different from sex assigned at birth, and gender identity lives within us, our brain, our heart, our soul. The medical care for gender-diverse youth, meaning transgender, those whose gender identity diametrically aligns with the opposite sex than the one they were assigned at birth, or non-binary youth, those who really see their gender identity as somewhere in between. It starts at the level of their regular community pediatrician, who now really understands that diversity and can identify when harmful elements called dysphoria that stream out of that sort of inner disconnect. When that threatens the health and the well-being of youth, to be able to refer those patients to a multidisciplinary subspecialty level team to provide the health care that all three of us on this call do is critically important. Dr. Kirkley, what role does gender affirmation play in doctor-patient interactions more broadly? Yeah, you know, I think Dr. Ladinsky summed it up very well. <clears throat> and, you know, as she noted, it's a, there can be a very broad definition. Uh, I think gender-affirming care in the broadest sense is really any healthcare that's informed by the lived experience of trans people and understanding that that experience can be quite diverse, um, but most importantly, delivered with both cultural and clinical competence. So, you know, I think a lot of the things get highlighted, especially now, are along the lines of things like puberty blockers, gender-affirming hormone therapy, gender-affirming surgery, which are all super important and can be critical to many people, um, but also just basic primary care, preventative health services, um, you know, any experience with the healthcare system, uh, it's critical that it be delivered through that lens. And, um, and we know that that affirming care in all those different settings is truly life-saving. Dr. Sequeira, what's the age range of patients you see? Yeah, um, so I start seeing patients around age eight, um, really at the earliest signs of pubertal development. And then our clinic uh, continues to provide care uh, for young people up to the age of 21. And how does age determine what kind of treatment a patient receives? That's a great question. So it's actually less about age and more about where a young person is in puberty. So to be really clear, before a young person starts to have any puberty in the sex they were assigned at birth, there are no medical interventions that we would begin for that young person. It is only once they begin to um, experience some changes to their body from puberty um, and specifically when young people are experiencing distress by that, that we talk about um, what options may be available for them early. That is puberty blockers or medications that put a pause on the puberty that they're starting to develop and having distress from. And then later in adolescence, uh, speak about other medications like testosterone or estradiol um, that may help facilitate changes to their body that are in line with their gender identity. So Dr. Ladinsky, I just want to pull on this distinction right now between puberty blockers and other types of hormone treatments. Can you explain that very clearly for us? By all means, and it is one of the biggest lines of disinformation within all of these bills circulating around the country. For youth on the cusp of puberty with a gender diverse identity, meaning 9, 10, 11, 12, even 13 years old, 
Puberty blockers, or a family of medications known as GnRH agonists, literally hit a completely reversible pause button and simply pause the unwanted physical changes that may bring horror to a child walking this journey that would align with their sex assigned at birth. Think a reversible pause button. And they've been used for 30 years that way. FDA approved by pediatric endocrinologists all over this nation and the world to deal with a similar condition, physically known as precocious or premature puberty. Whereas hormonal therapy, exactly as your guest said, is something that may be under consideration and merit older teens to further align their gender identity with who they are. And so puberty blockers are only used, if I'm hearing you correctly, if puberty causes the patient distress. So what signs of distress would warrant that treatment? Thank you, and you are completely correct. The signs that we see can be wide-ranging, but parents, first and foremost, will note something that's uncharacteristic of the child they knew. Withdrawing, not wanting to engage in activities they used to love, quitting sports teams, quitting activities, being reclusive, academic decline, grades falling, but most frighteningly, generalized major anxiety, depressive symptomatology, self-harm, and thoughts of ending their life. Dr. Kirkley, what's the biggest difference between the care that minors receive and the care that someone over 18 can access? Yeah, in a lot of ways, it can look very similar. Again, you know, taking into account people's experience and really making sure that that care is delivered in an affirming way. Um, you know, uh, one of the technical differences over 18, uh, in most cases, we're not using things like puberty blockers, although they can be useful in some contexts. Um, but, uh, but yeah, certainly providing things like hormone therapy, um, you know, broad primary care and, and surgical services where needed. Now, Dr. Sequera, the American Medical Association has called gender-affirming care, quote, medically necessary evidence-based care that improves the physical and mental health of transgender and gender-diverse people, end quote. The American Academy of Pediatrics and American Psychological Association have also endorsed it. Which medical treatments and uh, medications are states trying to restrict for minors right now? Yeah, so that's a great question. I, I appreciate you highlighting that, that really every major medical organization um, is, is in support of continuing to provide ongoing care for uh, for young people. And this includes medications like puberty blockers and gender-affirming hormones for adolescents, um, all of which are under attack in many of the bills that we've seen proposed in this past legislative session, including in the state neighboring myself um, that passed through the House, either HB 675, um, just last month would um, have provided me with felony charges for continuing to provide ongoing care, uh, specifically puberty blockers and gender-informing hormones for my patients that live in Idaho. Um, Those same restrictions um, existed for parents who would facilitate access to gender-affirming care by crossing state lines into Washington. Uh, Those same felony charges would apply to to families. 
Dr. Ledinsky, we reached out to Alabama's Republican Governor Kay Ivey, and her spokesperson sent us a statement explaining Ivey's decision to sign Senate Bill 184. It reads in part, we should especially protect our children from these radical life-altering drugs and surgeries when they are at such a vulnerable stage in life, end quote. You can read the full statement at the 1A.org. Let's break that statement into two parts, starting with the drugs. You said that the hormone block, uh, rather, I'm sorry, the puberty blockers are a reversible pause button. What about other the other hormone therapies you mentioned? The so thank you. The um, the medications that Dr. Sakara has mentioned are exactly the two that I would face a felony conviction for continuing to prescribe. Those two um, they are a bit different in that the reversible pause button at the time of puberty for blockers is a little bit different than the hormonal therapies we use in our older youth. But remember, those youth have been with us for a very long time, have had a long journey of persistent dysphoria with mental health attestation that they are ready. Those have a less reversible course of action. And Dr. Kirkley, what about surgeries? At what point in the gender-affirming care um, spectrum do those surgeries happen? Yeah, you know, I mean, I'd say really speaking from the adult perspective can happen at almost any point in the journey. Um, It's a little different for everybody. And there's obviously many different factors um, which contribute to when folks are comfortable presenting as themselves and coming out um, and living that life openly. Um, And so all the way from, you know, young adulthood, all the way uh, to older ages. Um, So it can happen at uh, many points in the journey. But you, you have to be over the age of 18 to access that surgery? Yeah, and this can vary, um, you know, probably even on a state-by-state basis, but uh, but usually in later adolescence to early adulthood. Jay emails us this question, what government regulations or professional standards exist in states where gender-affirming care is not banned? Um, Dr. Sequera, I'll come to you on this. Sure. So we have, there are multiple organizations that provide guidelines um, for us, those of us who are medical providers who provide gender-affirming medications for adolescents. Um, Some of those are the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, um, the Endocrine Society, for example, both of which have really detailed guidelines as it relates to the provision of gender-affirming care for, for youth and adolescents. Well, here's a question we got from a parent. Hi, my name is Russell. Uh, I'm the parent of a child that came out as trans two years ago, about age 16, no other earlier childhood discomfort with her gender. Uh, What I've learned through countless meetings with pediatricians and clinicians is that there's been an explosion in teen girls like ours seeking medical treatments, testosterone, mastectomies, etc. Now many of these girls who are treated medically are detransitioning when having to live with the permanent uh, effects of their treatments. So I'd like to know how the medical community is safeguarding children from making such profound mistakes. Uh, Dr. Ladinsky, we, we hear about detransitioning, and you touched on it a little earlier. How much do we know about the actual rates of detransitioning? Is this an area that's been well-researched? The research that we have is quite good throughout not just the United States and, and Europe. But when we look prospectively, we must remember that puberty and time are really the events that align us as medical providers to understand the need for this individual use transition. Um, in our, you know, in where we are now, 
the the known rate of retransitioning, so reverting back to align one's you know identity and body, prospectively looking at the surgical literature is at the absolute most 1%, and it's actually less, those who have been through puberty and are now adults. Very, very small. So, Dr. Sequeira, how do you advise patients about making the right decision for themselves, especially long-term? Yeah, so I think that's a great question. So I think I want to provide a little bit of context for what um, what our sessions with with young people and their families look like. So you know, the model that we utilize in our clinic involves a young person and any other people in their life that uh, make medical decisions, legal medical decisions for them. So in the vast majority of cases, this is an adolescent's parent. Um, we have an initial visit with one of our mental health providers in our clinic who sits down with the young person, sits down with their family, um, and really tries to center the conversation around a young person's goals around their gender, um, talking with them and creating space for them to talk with their families about um, how they see their gender, areas of of their body or um, areas of their experience that they're having discomfort or distress with, and then really aligning and then trying to kind of center the youth's voice around what is is their goal as it relates to to gender-affirming care. Um, And that may not involve any medical interventions, um, but for some youth it does. And for those who it does, there are ongoing conversations conversations with that mental health provider and perhaps a medical provider eventually um, as it relates to talking more about making sure that the young person and their family understands um, if the conversation is around testosterone, for example, that that everyone involved, um, I feel like it is my responsibility as someone providing gender-affirming medications um, to make sure that the young person and their family understand what testosterone does, what it doesn't do, um, what changes to the body. as Dr. Lubinsky mentioned, um, you know, our permanent changes to the body are things that once they happen would stay. Um, and only after everyone, um, so a young person's parent, um, the young person themselves, uh, most importantly, um, and myself are all in agreement that um, moving forward with this medication is, is the right thing for the young person. This is primarily driven by, again, that young person themselves, that only then do we move forward with initiating gender-affirming medications. These are things that we're continuing to check in with young people about on a very regular basis. I see the vast majority of my patients every three months after they've started on medications to continue to check in with them to see, have your gender affirming, you know, your goals around gender affirming care changed at all? How are you feeling about the changes that you're seeing to to your body? What of these um, changes are feeling right for you? And are there there anything that aren't feeling right for you, right? So this isn't just one decision that is made. This is something, these are ongoing conversation with a young person and their family uh, that happen over time. Dr. Ledinsky, in February, a study from the American Medical Association found that kids who received puberty blockers and hormone therapy had 60% lower odds of moderate or severe depression and 73% lower odds of suicidality. What types of mental health care accompany the gender-affirming care we're talking about today? Yeah, thank you for that, because as... Gina has said, this is a team. This is a huge team sport. The entire team, our team has two psychologists, a psychiatrist, as well as the entire family. The misinformation that youth make this decision in a vacuum could not be farther from the truth, and you're hearing that. When it comes to the mental health space, the vast majority of the youth we see have a psychologist, a counselor, who they see regularly. Now, having a gender-diverse identity does not equate to 
you know, mental health to accompany it, but it's more how do we continue to maintain resilience within our family, within our community, our school, and down here in Alabama, our faith community, in the face of a misunderstood identity that has been marginalized and maligned for a long time. With great mental health, we see success all the way around. Dr. Kirkley, how do you integrate mental health services into the treatments you provide at at Plume? Yeah, uh, you know, we try to do it a number of ways. I think first and foremost, we really try to have a care team that uh, shares the lived experience of our patients. And so a lot of our team is trans-identified and also creating those affirming spaces, whatever the interaction might be, whether it's talking to our care coordinators, getting a logistical issue taken care of, or of course, undergoing a clinical evaluation, um, but also starting to implement things like uh, peer support groups, um, right? We're, I think, questioning a lot of the paradigms that we live under as trans people when it comes to healthcare. And and some of those can be really helpful, but also exploring other ways um, that we can support ourselves and provide that mental health support. Um, And so so that's one thing that we've started to do and also looking into things like group therapy and and also access to to one-on-one therapy as well. Well, we want to mention here, if you are an LGBTQ plus youth in need of mental health support, you can call the Trevor Project hotline at 1-866-488-7386. It's available 24-7. Again, that number is 1-866-488-7386. I I want to hear very briefly, uh, Dr. Kirkley, what gaps you're hoping to fill in, in health care through your company, Plume, which again is focused on the trans community. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think, um, you know, one of the reasons that gaps exist for gender affirming care uh, is because it's not a standardized part of medical education, whether that's in medical schools, nursing schools, uh, and beyond. And, um, and hopefully we get to that point. But until we do, um, there's still going to be a long time before we have all medical providers trained on this and be able to provide both culturally and clinically competent care. So, you know, leveraging a a virtual national network enables us to bring in folks who want to do this work, who have the experience, and also who are willing to be trained and and gain that competence and provide this life-saving care. Um, So it it is really awesome to be able to bring people from all over the country uh, together under one clinical roof and, and provide this care to to a lot of people. So I think that's one of the main advantages that the uh, virtual platform can offer. We're discussing the latest bills restricting gender-affirming care for minors. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. Remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app, and leave us a voicemail. Now let's get back to the latest restrictions on health care for trans youth. Dr. Ladinsky, you've challenged Alabama's latest bill in court alongside other doctors and two families. Uh, this bill makes it a felony for you to provide any gender-affirming care to minors. Again, we reached out to Alabama's Republican governor, Kay Ivey, and her spokesperson sent us a statement explaining Ivey's decision to sign Senate Bill 184, and it reads in part, quote, we should especially protect our children from these radical life-altering drugs and surgeries when they are at such a vulnerable stage in life. Dr. Landinsky, in, in the meantime, what does this mean for the care you provide for your patients? Well, the care that we provide currently is right now business as usual. We have challenged this law. The law would be set to take place 30 days from the governor's signature, which occurred last Friday. This unprecedented level of legislative overreach into the practice of medicine, 
the unprecedented shutting down of the parent voice in medical decision-making cannot go unaddressed. So we are absolutely challenging this unconstitutional law. We hope and expect to obtain an injunction very soon. We've explained to our families, our youth, that an injunction means the law gets put on hold. It does not take effect until it has been reviewed by appellate courts and will hopefully be overturned. We are very fortunate to have the support we need. And in the space we're in right now in Alabama, we are continuing to provide the standard of care medicine we always have and will. We got this tweet from Yo Adrian who asks, does providing counseling or therapy break the laws that restrict gender-affirming care? Dr. Ladinsky, is, is that clear in Alabama? That is clear. That is clear in the Alabama law. Remember that this is now the third session, the third go-around with this piece of legislation. And so it has been refined and reformulated as these really critical questions have been asked along the way. The only risk of criminalization is to one that actually prescribes blockers or hormones. Our amazing psychologists, counselors, uh, not psychiatrists, but counselors, psychologists are not risking prosecution at all. And in fact, they may become our lifeline. Dr. Sequeira, you're in Seattle, Washington, a, a blue city in a blue state. How has this wave of legislation targeting gender-affirming care affected your practice? Yeah, so I, I know I mentioned earlier in the show um, HB 675, which is a House bill um, that went through and passed through the Idaho House last month. And I think one one thing that I think is important to note about gender-affirming care is it is incredibly difficult to access, uh, especially for youth. And so many youth that live in northern Idaho um, do not have access to any gender-affirming care provider um, in their area and thus drive the nearly five to six hours to Seattle um, to and receive that, care. And I just want to mention here, the bill you're mentioning is similar to the bill in Alabama. Uh, it would criminalize providing gender-affirming care, but also criminalize aiding a child in seeking out-of-state care, and that uh, proposed offense would be punishable by life in prison, but it was blocked in the Senate. Go ahead. Yes, that is correct. Thank you for adding that additional context. But so I think, as you mentioned, even living in a very blue state in a very blue city, um, there are direct impacts on our care. Um, so I actively take care of patients in Idaho. And um, I would have had that bill passed through the Senate and then been signed by the governor, I would have had to discontinue um, the care that we were providing. And our attempts at being able to have you know, patients drive into Washington to receive care would have not been possible, given that would have been putting parents at risk for felony charges themselves. Now, Dr. Kirkley, again, you're, you're providing care for patients who are over 18, but how concerned are you about yourself, your medical team, and your patients? Yeah, I mean, I think when we see things like this, it really affects us all, right? It affects all trans people. There is, of course, the, the, the devastating and direct uh, impact on youth in states like Alabama um, who are at risk of losing services. But uh, but we also know that upwards of a third of trans people are actively discriminated against in a healthcare facility, even as it stands. And so this can only amplify, unfortunately, that stigma and intimidation. And so, um, yeah, it can affect the mental health uh, of all trans people and even the experience getting care as it might even influence some providers to uh, you know, not provide this care in states where it actually is uh, legally uh, fine to do so. Um, uh, so so there, there's a lot of concern there for sure.
Well, Texas's uh, Attorney General Ken Paxton, a Republican, is asking that state's Supreme Court to allow investigations into families who are seeking gender-affirming care to determine whether child abuse is concerning. And Dr. Sequeira, when considering your your medical code of ethics, doctor-patient privacy protections, what concerns does an order like the one in Texas raise for you? It's profoundly concerning to see uh, that investigations that the, the, gov- the government officials in Texas are facilitating investigation into, as you mentioned at the top of the show, loving families who are doing what is um, in the best interest of their child, working alongside their physicians and really led by their young person making decisions about um, the medical care that they receive. And so it is just unconscionable to me to see what's happening down um, in Texas with, the, with these investigations, I think profoundly harmful. We're in fact having families move from Texas to Washington to establish care uh, to be able to continue to receive gender-affirming medications um, in our clinic in in Seattle. From a medical perspective, what would amount to abuse in gender-affirming care? So I I can't think of, like, in terms of the provision of gender-affirming care, I mean, I think it is very clear. We have great, um, we have have data to suggest in the medical literature that this care is, in fact, um, has a positive impact on youth mental health. I think this is care that is recommended by every major major medical organization, um, as we mentioned earlier, including the American Academy of Pediatrics. And so I think parents who are facilitating access to gender-affirming care for their children, um, in no way, shape, or form can I understand how a government official could... um, kind of uh, consider that child abuse. We got this email from Thomas who says, I have a 15-year-old who came to us about four years ago, who came out to us about four years ago as a trans boy. We have supported him every way we can, therapy, binders, legal name change, etc. However, we are now at hormone therapy. As a scientist who studies sexual development, I have difficulty understanding how an 11-year-old knows his gender identity. I am 51 and am just figuring out mine. And Justin emails, how do loving parents decide on moving forward, deciding between supporting their children and possibly unintentionally pushing them toward gender dysphoria. Uh, Dr. Ledensky, I'd love to hear from you on that. Absolutely. And those are very, very common questions and very natural to ask because really only about a quarter of people in this country have known a trans-identified youth to understand that journey. The most important element of all of this is to trust the medical professionals who are teaming with you on this journey. And it is time and time and time of watching your child mature in that identity, wearing it, living it, trying it on, and seeing how the world reacts to them in it. Parents are on that journey too, one they didn't ask for, but one that can be rich and rewarding with time and support. So we are literally a robust blanket around these families and these communities to help each person in their own way understand where the journey is taking them. It's called shared medical decision-making. An 11-year-old may very well know their identity, but they in and of themselves cannot choose their health care. It's the team and parents around them that work with that youth day in and day out. Dr. Kirkley, what do you hear from patients who weren't able to access gender-affirming care um, before adulthood? Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you over and over again, uh, we hear from patients that they wish they had that access earlier. Um, you know, it, this comes up all the time. And, and again, there's a, there's incredible societal pressures which prevent people um, from, from living openly as who they are and, and also just 
logistical barriers to access to uh, to medical therapy if that is um, desired. And, and one thing I'd say to the you know the the question that came in, um, you know, as a fifty or fifty one year old uh, cisgender male, you know, if you think back to when you were eleven years old, did you know that you were male? And I think the answer is likely yes. And so we tend to amplify, um, you know, and, and put trans people under the microscope, but very reasonable that 11 year old would be affirmed in their gender identity and understanding that gender identity is also exists on a spectrum, right? There are certainly folks that identify male and female, but also non-binary and gender non-conforming and, and other identities that don't necessarily fall into that, those binary categories. That's Dr. Jerrica Kirkley, co-founder and chief medical officer of Plume, a digital health company serving transgender people. Also with us today, Dr. Marissa Ledinsky, a professor of pediatrics at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and co-lead of the university's youth multidisciplinary gender team. And Dr. Gina Sequera, co-director of Seattle Children's Gender Clinic. Thanks to you all. Today's producer was Sophia Alvarez-Boyd. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A.